Okay, guys, so welcome to season two of The Manifesto Reads. I'm OJ. And I'm Io. <laughs> and as you guys know, I'm a barrister and he is a management consultant. Who's studied politics politics degree. at university. Yeah, 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 okay, yeah, 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 thank you. Okay. All right, we got it. Okay, all right, thanks, Io. All right, so season two was intended originally to be a 100-day review of the Conservative government. But, However, but... Circumstances have changed. Yeah, and due to the outbreak of the coronavirus, um, we figured that it would be best to use season two to really kind of talk you through and what's been happening with the coronavirus and how that impacts all the different policy areas and additional policy areas that we covered in season one. Yes, so the breadth of the practices of our panellists will hopefully mean that we will be able to share some refreshing insight into how coronavirus has and will continue to affect all of us. And we'll also try to share practical tips, advice, how to navigate this difficult time. And as ever, if you guys have any questions you'd like to answer, um, then over the course of our episodes, get in touch with us via Twitter at Manifesto Read, via Instagram, which is at the Manifesto Read, or email us at themanifestoread at gmail.com and we'll do our best to cover everything that you ask us over the course of this series. Yes. Now, due to social distancing, how are we recording, Ayo? Well, we are all recording via Zoom, um, which means that although we weren't able to do our funky sound recordings in a sound studio with lots of mics and all that kind of stuff. We're doing um, some Zoom recordings. But what that does mean is that we're going to be able to provide you with video recording, which will go onto mm-hmm. YouTube after this episode has finished. Whoop, whoop. Yeah. Yay. I'm and less so, excited about that. So bear with us <laughs> because the quality of the sounds we know is not going to be as good as it was in season one, but hopefully the quality of the conversation will be just as strong. So we are kicking off with our health and social care episode. It's a little bit better seasons. to start, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, and so why don't we allow our wonderful panellists to introduce themselves, starting with Bami Afolabi. Um, Hi, my name is Bami Afolabi. I have been running care homes in East London, Essex for the last nine years. I've taken a short sabbatical from that to pursue a degree in global health at Bath in the London. And next we have Danielle. Hi, I'm Danielle Solomon. I am a public health doctor and I'm currently a Wellcome Trust clinical PhD fellow. Oh, can you can you hear me? It sort of froze and went off. So do you want to do that again, Danny? I feel like no. (laughs) Oh, I think the signal has. Yeah, I'll give that another try. Can you hear me now? Sort of. It's a little bit fragmented. Okay. Do you want to move to someone else? And I will try moving to a different room. Hang on. Okay. All right. We'll go back to Danielle and we'll go over to Daniel. Hi, I'm Daniel Mallon. I am the South London Vascular Networks Manager and I'm a former Senior Policy Advisor at the Department of Health. And I also sit on the Advisory Committee for Progress Educational Trust, which is a uh, assisted conception and genetics charity. Great. And next we have Felicia. 
You're on mute, Felicia. <laughs> Hi, I'm Felicia Lujana. Um I'm a GP in North London, um, and I'm also work with um, North Central London sort of boroughs, working on GP retention and recruitment. Brilliant. And penultimately, we have Roz. Hello, I'm Roz Hawley. I'm a management consultant at a firm called 2090 Delivery, which specialises in public sector projects. Um, and so I've worked across the health system from frontline with frontline staff um, in NHS hospitals right through to um, the NHS England um, and national bodies. Great. I think we have momentarily lost Danielle, so what Correct. I'll do is I'll be a bit cheeky and I'll do her intro for her. Um, so those of you that listen to series one will be familiar with Danielle's background. She's quite formidable. She's a specialist registrar in public health and a Wellcome Trust clinical PhD fellow at the Institute for Global Health at UCL. She graduated in uh, medicine from Oxford. She's got a master's in public health from Harvard at uh, the Chan School of Public Health. And prior to specialising in that area, she practised as a sexual health and HIV physician at the Mortimer Market Centre in central London. And I think that she has just come back. So, Danny, I've stolen your thunder slightly and done your intro for you. Okay, that's fine. Okay. Um, yeah. But let's kick into the actual episode itself. I think what would be really good is if we start off with just an overview of what exactly we're dealing with when we refer to coronavirus and when we refer to COVID. So, Felicia, can you give us an idea of what COVID-19 actually is, please? Um, yeah, so the term coronavirus or coronaviruses is actually an umbrella term. So it's a, coronaviruses represent a, or, or the name for a family of viruses that tend to cause illness and disease affecting your respiratory tract, so from sinuses, throat, um, lungs. Um, coronavirus, coronaviruses include the common cold, that's caused as a coronavirus, so you can have a mild common cold, and then you've got COVID-19, which we're dealing with now. Another um, more severe, well-known coronavirus is SARS, so SARS is severe acute respiratory respiratory syndrome, syndrome. Um, and that's another coronavirus that we kind of heard about maybe about 10. 15 years ago that was big um yeah and now we have COVID-19 which is named COVID-19 because it's a coronavirus that was um discovered in 2019 um and that's basically the summary so elementary it's it's a virus that affects respiratory tract it affects your it affects the, the body or is transmitted in the same way as most other coronaviruses like the common cold um but this one has much more severe outcomes and seems to be spreading at a much a more alarming rate okay and so in terms of the current health advice obviously we're in an environment where it is rapidly changing and each day we're getting more advice we're hearing different nuances in terms of what we're supposed to be doing what we're not supposed to be doing danielle could you give us an overview of what the current health advice is as of today and just so that our listeners who may be listening to us at a later date know today means the 24th of March 2020. Yes, happy to. Um, and uh, as you said, you've already done my introduction, but just to clarify, I'm in public health, so um, the guidelines are my bread and butter, um, but I know that they've been changing quite I a lot. I need your number, so, basically. 
Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I think the good way to split them up is what you're meant to do to stop yourself from getting um, COVID and what you're meant to do to stop other people from getting COVID. So the best way to protect yourself is to wash your hands more than you otherwise would. Um, uh, as much as possible really and to wash them with soap for 20 seconds I'm sure a lot of you have heard um, that you should be singing happy birthday twice while you wash your hands there are a lot of twitter threads about other songs that last for 20 seconds um go nuts with them um the other things are coughing or sneezing into um either your elbow or into a tissue and making sure you throw the tissue away um, and uh, staying two metres away from anyone else. Um, I'll talk a little bit about isolation and self-distancing in a second, but those are the main things in terms of trying to stop other people from getting coronavirus. The big um, um, thing that people recommend is act as though you already have it. Don't act as though um, you're trying to stop yourself from getting it. So stay away from people and keep your hands clean. Also try very hard not to touch your face, particularly if you're outside. Um, the other guidance is to do with stopping other people from getting coronavirus if you already have it and you know that you have it. So any symptoms um, that are cold or flu-like symptoms, particularly um, a new persistent cough or a new fever, um, you should stay at home for seven days. And that's on top of the current lockdown that we currently have. I know, we're, are we calling it a lockdown? I'm not sure. But the, I know that we're, um, at the moment, we're pretty restricted with what we can do in terms of going out but if you're symptomatic please don't leave the house at all for seven days and this is where it gets a bit confusing if someone who you live with is symptomatic so if they have uh, a cough if they have a fever if they have cold or flu-like symptoms you need to stay in with them for 14 days and the reason for that is because there's a period of time called an incubation period where you may be infectious but you might not yourself be showing symptoms. So what we ask is that during that time when you might yourself not be sick, but you know you've been in contact with someone who is, you stay at home and then um, another seven days just to make sure that by the time you go out again, um, you're not going to pass on the virus. Um, to talk a little Danny, bit about self-isolation. Can I ask a, a question on that uh, in terms of the, that period, of course, the 14-day yeah. period and the seven-day period? When we first got advice about how long you were supposed to self-isolate for if you demonstrated any symptoms of the new cough or the fever, we were initially told as individuals that we were supposed to isolate for 14 days. And then that was reduced to seven days for individuals and then 14 for groups. Are you able to explain why there was that apparent change in the advice that we were given by the government? Yes, I think we've had a better understanding now of how long someone's symptomatic for, someone that, sorry, is infectious for when they have symptoms. Um, and so um, about seven days after someone actually starts exhibiting symptoms, they're much less likely to pass on the virus, which is why we're saying seven days for people who've started showing symptoms and then 14 days for people who live with them. Danielle, just sorry, um, just to butt in there, Daniel has a question, I believe. Yeah, I was just wondering if you could explain the advice to people with other health conditions. So there is different advice if you have other health conditions, and I didn't want to miss that off because that's confused a yes, lot of people. of course. So, um, yes, this is also where it gets a bit confusing. So um, in terms of other health conditions, again, 
uh, we are all meant to be staying inside and I'll, I'll go over that in a second but um, in particular if you are uh, either over the age of 70 or you're someone who would normally get a flu jab from your GP okay so that's usually people with um, various uh, respiratory oh hello Hello. Are you guys able to hear me? No, I think Abby's frozen. We can hear you, so you carry on, Daniel. Oh, okay. That's fine. Perfect. Um, so, uh, yes, if you would normally get a flu jab from your GP, so if you're pregnant, if you're over the age of 70, or if you um, are someone with various respiratory illnesses like COPD or asthma, um, you need to stay in as much as possible. Um, but you know it, I, I know that other people are allowed to go out for bits of exercise and go to the shops etc but if you're in one of those vulnerable groups you should basically be staying in the house almost all the time um, which is incredibly difficult but that that is the guidance um, for everyone else you should only leave the house to get medical care to go care for someone um, to go to the shops as infrequently as possible or for once a day for one form of exercise. So one run, one cycle, one walk, um, and, and that's about it. Ultimately, the idea of this is that we should not be coming in contact with each other. People should not be coming in contact with each other because a lot of people could have this virus and not know that they have it. And it's very, very easy to pass it on. Now, Danielle, just a question in terms of that category of caring for somebody else um, we've had a question from one of our viewers who's asked to remain anonymous and they have said uh, if they have a situation in which for example they and their partner are both working from home in quite intensive jobs and usually the person who would care for their toddler is the mother of one of the couple would that count as that mother traveling to care so she would be traveling from her home to the couple's address in order to look after that toddler within the confines of their home would that be something which is allowed under the current guidance or current so that is so that is uh, discouraged under the current rules for two reasons so depending on the age of the grandparent they are they are quite likely to get COVID from the child rather than the other way around so they potentially could be in a vulnerable group themselves so on the whole, the guidance is trying very much to discourage people from using um, uh, grandparents as childcare, just for one thing. And then for the other thing, on the whole, we're not really meant to be visiting family, um, which again is really hard. Um, but you're basically only meant to be seeing people that you yourself live with. So on the whole, under the guidance, we would discourage that. Okay, so that was a really clear outline um, that we've had there from Danielle in terms of the current situation. We know that there was an announcement today from Matt Hancock and he has put forward uh, new aspects or new developments which have come across from the UK government's strategy. Um, so Roz, a question for you. Could you explain to our listeners what is the logic behind the current UK policy and how does it compare internationally? Yeah, so maybe we'll start. Maybe we we'll start with the first bit. So, kind of, what is the UK policy? And actually, Danielle explained a lot of it. But it's you only go outside um, if you have to. So those those parameters are um, to get essential um, food, um, health reasons. So either a pharmacy or or, or a doctor or a hospital. Um, 
but the other one which has become clearer today uh, although ironically makes it less clear is work and I think we should talk a little bit about that because I saw Daniel pull some faces earlier when we were talking about um, is it lockdown is it not lockdown so um, in terms of the UK strategy um, I think we should talk a little bit about that um, and then the other policy as Danielle made clear was about staying um, away from people so two meters and you know washing your hands and general hygiene um, so the work one um, I think is difficult and and actually is picked up by the question you just um, the someone asked you which is um, around uh, you know what do I do to maintain my my life my working practices but I still need childcare and that involves an elderly relative or just generally a relative or someone having to move and on transport and I think this is where it gets a bit difficult for the policy um, Matt Hancock um, said today that they were clear that if you cannot work from home then you can travel to work and you can go to work um, so that is a little bit um, I think that's challenging for a number of people um, and um, isn't isn't actually very easy, particularly for people with childcare issues or where they're now expected to homeschool their children. Um, how this compares internationally? So I think I'll just go on to this and then obviously I think other people want to comment. But I think there's been, uh, the UK government's come under quite a lot of heat um, about how um, it's responded to things at certain times on the journey. Um, However, full lockdown, where things like everything has shut, um, actually um, has been only used in a very few cases. So for instance, in, in Italy, um, which we, we know have, have a number of cases and is, and is struggling to get control of the, the, um, the virus, um, has only seen lo very localized um, lockdowns where literally they just you know, isolated town. Um, and they say nothing can happen then no work whatsoever again in in China they had similar policies but it wasn't a blanket lockdown it was it was kind of regional maybe that's where the UK government will go maybe that's the next step because we have seen a progression of um, interventions um, mm -hmm. so perhaps that might be um, another level of intervention I think Belusha had something that she wanted to contribute I actually want to ask a question about that. I mean, it's a very difficult question, but obviously looking at Italy um, and what's happened there, is there not an argument that we should go further sooner to try and prevent them trying to play catch up with controlling this virus and perhaps go into isolating certain areas, complete lockdown, particularly London is sort mm. of the, the centre yeah. of the pandemic in, in the UK. Should we not just lockdown now and it's sort of short-term pain, long-term gain. We can't leave our houses for a month, but we don't get to Italy's Italy's point. So this is, I wrote a bit of a sarcastic comment in the script when you ask us questions. And I said that ironically, we now all love an expert, which is the irony of Michael Gosing, we're both experts. But I think we're, we've got a chief medical officer, in Professor Chris Whitty, whose entire life has been devoted to the studying of how diseases are spread. and it's kind of like the perfect person to help advise a government through a pandemic and mm. I, I think trying to say oh that's what Italy's done and they're still really bad uh, this is what China did and this is how it comes is very difficult um, and to say oh the UK should follow only what other countries are doing and do is just as draconian measures doesn't quite work so Italy 
could equally be argued that it was worse than it will be in the UK because they don't have a completely national health service. There was a mixture of public and private having to work together for the first time ever and it didn't really go well from what colleagues that are in Italy do and the same with China is we can't go to full-on China because um, we have human rights and we can't do lots of things the Chinese government can do and also we have a very different economic model so I I find this constant oh the UK should be doing more I think it has to be evidence-based and let's be honest we had the first death from coronavirus 18 days ago if someone tried to make us go into lockdown even 10 days ago I think we would have said no thanks mate and would walk around and there's 60 million of us there's not enough police yeah. and army for the love of us to get us all back into a house and I think Rose was just raising her hand so I think she had yeah. something to um, add to that so as um it's in support of what Daniel's saying about um the stages and I think that's absolutely right about um if we had had lockdown um earlier and perhaps not taken people on the journey uh it it, it it would have been more of a shock to the system. And just like anecdotally, I feel like, say, I'm in London and I kind of, I was very, the message that came, well, it was only yesterday, wasn't it, from the Prime Minister saying these and they're now quite stringent um, rules. Whereas I had relatives um, outside of London who were really like, whoa, like, is this for real? And I was like, I think it's just about stages and it's about um, bringing people to a place that they can, they can accept what's going to happen and not fight this because basically this is going to ideally work on cooperation it's a lot it would be a it would be a terrible state to get into if the army has to be drafted in and uh, uh, you know very aggressive and punitive measures so ideally you you want this to happen by cooperation and kind of a collective action solution rather than problem also frankly as we've seen from the way that people have reacted I think particularly amongst our age group I think most of the people on this panel would be within the sort of early 30s late 20s catchment and I've been quite surprised at how many people have continued to go out even with the guidance that we've had so far so it's quite clear that from a sort of behavioral aspect of things we do need that aspect of easing into things I think if they had introduced quite draconian measures from the outset there would have been quite a lot of rebellion and we'd have even less compliance than we've seen so far um Bami raised his hand at one stage and so has Felicia so maybe if we go to Bami because we've not heard from him yet just remember to unmute your mic Bami would be a thing to do. <laughs> um, we were told at one point that we would get a degree of transparency with regard to the data used to come to the decisions that have been made. Is there any word on what that might look like when that might when that might materialise? Anyone's heard uh, of? N- no, but. Uh, my favourite ever saying when I was in government was save that for the public inquiry, which was when you thought you're dealing with something controversial and you're like, oh, this is whatever we do, we're going to get told off. <laughs> there was no right answer. It was this save that for the public inquiry. And it's like that email you sent to say this is happening. This will go badly. I'm just letting you know, make your decisions. So I assume we'll have a thorough review. Uh, in some form of inquiry post facto in the lessons learned. Ross wants to join in on that one. No, no, I think it's quite, I think it's a good point. Um, but I think, um, and this goes back to Felicia, your point, and also kind of, I mean, what you were saying, uh, the, the, the problem with the draconian and measures and, um, you know, whatever the data source is, but going straight in um, is then what do you do 
because there's no clear exit strategy for this. I think we're going to discuss this later in the session, but because um, because you're not going to have lots and lots of people potentially catching because we're trying to flatten the curve. I, we, we don't want it all to peak at one point because we don't have enough capacity. Um, mm. You need to be able to save some measures or keep enough bandwidth in the system such that potentially we may oscillate for quite a while between going um, from quite draconian measures and lockdowns to having it a bit more freeform and draconian measures and a bit more freeform. And the data, I guess what's happening is perhaps they don't want to release the data just yet because um, I think there's a lot more of the story to come, if that makes sense. And Roz, can you just explain, because I think that the phrase flatten the curve is something that we've heard yeah. quite a lot over the last few days. Can you just explain in layman's terms what flatten the curve actually means? I will do my best. But essentially, um, if you have a graph of um, basically time, uh, and 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 deaths what you're trying to do or or outbreak but really we're talking about deaths is if coronavirus um has quite an aggressive line so like it's doing this and it's going straight up what you want to do is to try and pull it down so that over time you'll have you'll have more cases over a longer time period but you're bringing down that death rate and basically you're bringing down how much the system, i.e. the NHS or healthcare systems around the world, have to cope with at any one point, because we know that things like intensive care um, beds um, are, um, are of a premium and the staff that can actually, and the, and the equipment that you need to, to, to save people's lives. So that's what we're talking about. It's not a solution to the, uh, like a, a solution to the problem, um, mm. because ultimately, uh, it, it, the virus will still be around you're just extending the time of trying to bring it down so it's about management management really so it's about managing it and making sure that it's within the sort of capacity and the sort of uh resource level that we have and are able to actually deal with yeah and to put this okay. into stock and to put this into stock context i believe um correct me if i'm wrong um experts on here that we have five thousand ventilators with the seven with the further seven thousand being supplemented today is that correct? Just to kind of give an idea of how how little or how scarce the resources needed to combat serious illness attributed to coronavirus is. We have 12,000 ventilators for the whole of the United Kingdom. Is that correct? Does anyone know? I don't, I don't know the number of ventilators, but I was reading... It is about 5,000 in the UK um, yeah. at the moment. Um, maybe a negative comment is we do have one of the lower um icu beds per population compared to other european countries so we're already kind of starting off in a worse position because there are less beds per uh, thousand population compared to some other european countries i'm not sure the details of the supplementation because that's all happened today with this new announcement so i don't i bet it works so i don't know <laughs> exactly <laughs> the numbers so danielle's got her um, hands up so i think she might have the response that we need I don't. I don't have the response <laughs> I need. I don't know the exact numbers. <laughs> um, I just want to say, because um, it's been one of those things in terms of um, looking at the health service as, an, as, an, as a whole, that there's been a lot of discussion about how many ventilators we have, as if ventilators are autonomous machines that just work on their own. And a managed ventilated bed requires so many staff, um, expert staff, often people watching that patient 24 hours because that, that is a very very sick patient and someone who's using very complex 
uh, equipment. So it's not just about having, because, you know, there's a lot of talk about converting factories to make ventilators. The ventilators require some very specialist doctors and nurses to operate them. And hmm. you can't just train those people out of nowhere. So that's part of the capacity. I just wanted to point that out. So that leads into, I'm sorry to interrupt guys, just to circle it back in terms of... Um, we'll be going the, over again. ...of today's, today's announcement. Um, so Mr Hancock has, has said that they have recently uh, brought out of retirement quite a large number of recently retired NHS staff that have returned, that have responded to the call to return to service. That's included 2,600 uh, doctors, 2,660 doctors, over 2,500 pharmacists and over 6,000 nurses um, as well. So in terms of what Danielle was just saying, are those one of the reasons that we've had that call in terms of just like bringing back that specialist knowledge and making sure that we have that level of resource available to us within the NHS? So if Lucia had a hand up, Danielle and Dan, I'll let you guys battle to sort out who responds. Felicia was first. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> um, well, that is why the call was put out because clearly um, workforce is going to be a huge issue. I think the irony, because um, I've been working in GP recruitment and retention for uh, the last 18 months, um, which is kind of part of NHS England's plan and the long-term plan and Boris's plan, which, you know, was mentioned lots over the past six months about getting 5,000 new GPs from somewhere, supplement the primary care, I'm primary care focused by the way, I'm not very much secondary care focused, um, getting 5,000 more GPs to supplement this dwindling primary care workforce and creating how many million new appointments and it's, it's just funny that we now have to do all of this that was supposed to be a five-year plan in like five weeks and now we're literally doing the right thing but you know, getting GPs out of retirement and doctors out of retirement is the only way we're going to be able, one of the only ways we're going to be able to supplement the workforce. Um, because right. as Danielle said, we can't get, you can't train these people up from nowhere. Although they're doing a lot of other workforce management, so making medical students might have to start their rotations early. So usually medical yeah. students finish university and go back in August, but they're probably going to have to go straight into work. Um, they're taking people out of training posts um, to go and kind of help in hospitals so they are doing a lot to try to get the expertise from different places but as Daniel said it's it you can't you can't kind of create expertise from nowhere these people need to be trained and some hospitals are actually at the point of training other specialties so to be able to help with sort of ITU patients that they're training doctors who would never usually be involved in ITU or ventilation giving them sort of very, I'm sure, very um, robust thorough training, but training they would never have ever had if it wasn't for this virus. Episodic and, story um, on this as well. Um, I don't, don't want to name names. I don't want to name names, but an orthopedic <laughs> surgeon who's been trained last minute to, to, to ventilate, which, um, which I find quite interesting. This is, this, this is the point I was going to make, and it touches on what Danielle says, is you can make new ventilators and you can try and quickly throw loads more ventilators into a, an area and you can get loads of retired gps but actually what you need is people that have managed critical be care beds who have been in intensive care and with the greatest one of others those 2660 doctors were not all critical care consultants and intensivists 
um, that have retired. They can be a real mix. And so what we really need is to upskill the staff. Have. I work with very highly skilled surgeons every day. They're great at the thing they have spent the last 20 years learning. They are not going to be very good at going back three or four grades and becoming registrars that have to manage wards because there's no one else. Love them all to bits. They will say the same. Some I have absolute faith in. Um, but what is happening is our specialist nurses that may have been in vascular or cardiovascular but had worked in intensive care or other critical care bits are just saying, well, you did that two years ago. You could be really quickly upskilled back to the level you were at to learn the skills that have happened in the two years, and you go back. So, what some of these people that are coming back in the workforce, they won't be going into the intensive care unit, but what they might be doing is letting workforce who is better place to be redeployed back into intensive care their job being backfilled because coronavirus is terrible and it is a, a health emergency but that doesn't stop the fact that people are still going to have diabetic foot sepsis they're still going to have critical limb ischemia that's just ones i deal with they're still going to have cancers they're still going to have all these things that need to be looked after and they're not looked after because everyone is on coronavirus all we're doing is building up another health emergency in six months time so the people coming back may not be the intensive carers we need but they hopefully should free up current staff to be redeployed who are much better placed to learn all the new skills they have to i see felicia had her hands up my front door's going sorry i'm, I'm not <laughs> right, expecting so anyone i live alone i live alone sorry just in case you hear a random bell probably someone's deliveroo um, I was going to add, yes, that's a really, really good point. And I think um, definitely, obviously, Dan is much more secondary care focused. And a lot of the talk is about ICU and ventilators and all this specialist care. But the overspill is going to be huge on primary care. So the BMA, I think this week we've got new information that basically does state that people are still going to be unwell and die from things other than from other things as we redirect all our resources to coronavirus. And we yeah. need to be aware how we can minimize that negative impact on the health of the rest of the population um, as much as we can. And there's been some kind of guidance about what is safe to defer in primary care. What is safe to say, oh, let's leave that another three to six months, delay your smear test for six months because it's not safe for you to be walking around the streets into your general practice. Um, in case you pick up coronavirus. But on the other hand, people delaying those appointments might lead to some negative effects in the long term because yeah. something didn't get picked up as early or you know they let their diabetes go out of control for a bit longer or mental health is definitely going to be one that suffers a lot because a lot of that does require face-to-face -face appointments. It's already very stretched. They're already cancelling their face-to-face -face appointments and people are dealing with a pandemic anyway. Um, so the the catch up on just health on people's health alone outside of coronavirus is going to be, is going to be huge. And that's where um, this extra workforce can also come into play to kind of supplement managing everything else whilst we've got specialists and, you know, other more expertise people dealing with the coronavirus mm. crisis itself. Well, that leads us on to um, just a short point. So we had, we had it down as a, as a, 
bigger discussion point but I know that we can cover it in the justice episode I know that Dan you wanted to discuss this maybe we'll bring you on to that episode to discuss it um but obviously we've seen the coronavirus bill is making its way through parliament um it's gone through the house of commons today and there are as you've all pointed out some quite pragmatic um some may also say as far as draconian um, measures which are being brought in or powers at least which are being given to the government should they need to um, use them should things get worse but one of the things that struck me was the relaxation of rules regarding sectioning people with mental health issues because of course that's an area that requires quite intensive normally quite intensive and forensic um, reporting and checking by mental health specialists um, so that could be an indication of this view that there are areas that you can be more relaxed in and be less time intensive about so that those particular um, doctors and resources, nurses and so on, can be used elsewhere without causing a backlog to people who are potentially very, very vulnerable, even outside of um, COVID. Um, so sorry, Dan, because I know that I've taken that away from you in terms of the topic you wanted to discuss, but I'm just conscious of time. If so- we move on. Oh, sorry, gone. So just just on the bills front, um, it, yeah. it is it is colossal. It is three hundred twenty six pages, and anyone that watches season one knows that I'm not shy from legal and parliamentary geekery in any way. <laughs> um, it is it is impossible to get through. I have a law degree. I have helped write legislation in government, and I was pulling my hair out trying to reconnect the dots of how everything works together and I, that, I'm not boast I, I'm, I'm quite good at it like I, I that was my job for a while um, this is being pushed through at lightning speed with a lot of political power behind it and yeah, some I can't the, believe it's already gone through the commons like, yeah I'm but the commons don't ever really read any legislation they don't read anything normally the fact that it's so wide-ranging if you consider how long they normally spend debating things that so, widen police powers it, that widen these if, sorts of things it is quite if, I, if we're going to shut this down to two second things the thing you need to look at is the the the, the powers they're giving to get rid of the, around the care act 2014 to stop local mm-hmm. authorities having a, a need to assess everyone um so there's a lot of stuff in there where we're just basically many disabled people will not get proper health assessments and will not be guaranteed the personal care they need to survive and um Tammy Gray Thompson and nine uh, disability charities come out saying that this could lead to people dying at their homes because they will not have trained staff um and then find that there's there's also stuff around civil liberties and the powers they're giving to the police which is very difficult to understand and I've read that schedule four times and then there's finally the, the kind of surveillance powers about how they can use data and personal data and there's finally a fine an ultimate bit where this is the co- coronavirus bill um, but they say it's all time limited but how they've they haven't put in dedicated sunset clauses to certain powers they've given declaration powers and that's not the same yeah. they could have said that this would all stop the law would end all the laws they put in place would end in september say 2020 or april 2021 and unless they had done something to keep it going it would all this legislation would fall away they haven't done that in many areas and so Mm. far this will stay on the statute book as long as they like um and what to give someone a power what Matt yep. Hancock has said today is that he, well, his proposal uh, is that it's reviewed every six months uh, from the date that it's enforced. How pragmatic that actually is. 
interesting and, and what depth that review will go into um, is another question. But I'm just conscious that we, we will delve into that in another episode. Um, but obviously using the um, particular expertise that we have here, Dan and I could talk about that for ages. Um, but if we go on to our sort of like medical deep dive um, aspects of things, so this is an area that for Lucia, I think you're going to be taking the lead on with some interjection from the Dan's. Um, so we know, obviously, I think most of us have a vague idea of what COVID is. You've very helpfully explained it at the beginning. Um, we've been told repeatedly that people who are the most vulnerable are those who have underlying health conditions, the elderly, and conversely, that people who are very young, children in particular, seem to uh, be able to cope with the um, virus or the disease much more easily but what does that actually mean so why does it affect what is it or, or does it affect children differently or is that just sort of an oversimplification of how it's been represented in the media um no it's not um i think danny mentioned it earlier is the key sort of groups of people that get the flu jab so disease illness viruses bacteria have been around and infecting us for the whole of eternity some diseases have, honestly, I'm not sure if we always know why, have sort of a, a target population where the, you know, men get more, some certain diseases more than women, um, children get certain diseases more than adults. For example, we vaccinate kids for measles, mumps and rubella because that's the disease, and for polio and diphtheria, because that was a disease that 100 years ago, loads of kids used to die from and child life expectancy was low. So we vaccinated children to protect them from that. You didn't vaccinate adults because once they made it to adulthood, it was a huge risk of being ill from it. Flu, uh, just uh, classic influenza, uh, kills about 8,000 people in the UK every year. And most of those people are elderly. So that kind of respiratory virus tends to um, affect older people who probably have less respiratory reserve. So their lungs are just not as strong as they were maybe 50 years ago to cope with an infection and also perhaps weakened by underlying health conditions. So the same way we vaccinate these special groups um, for the flu and if you've got you'll get a text from your GP surgery if you're in one of these groups be vaccinated because you're at higher risk. It's the same group of people that's, that are suffering from coronavirus which is a similar um, virus just with much more um, or much more severe outcomes and really, really high um, quick sort of transmission. Going back to speaking about, I mentioned SARS. So that was 2003, four. And I think there was about 8,000 or less than 10,000 people died during that outbreak, um, which didn't really reach the UK, didn't reach as many countries. Um, whereas um, we've got how many, nearly 20,000 people have died already from coronavirus so it's just it's the impact um that it's having is obviously very significant and like other coronaviruses it does tend to make affect older people more than younger people however the more people are affected the bigger of that proportion will be younger people so the more people that get the virus the more younger people you're going to see getting affected and do you think that has fed into um the efforts to actually tackle the virus do you think the fact that we are constantly being told that those of us who are otherwise healthy, who are relatively young and so on, are it's less likely to be a fatal 
an outcome for oh, us do yeah, you think 100%. that feeds into the mentality of the public yeah yeah i i i i think very understandably and reasonably so that you would think as a you know teenager or a 20 year old that this virus is killing old people affecting old people i'm fine so i can carry with my normal business and i guess it's not till more recently that the media has been pushing the 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 um advice is not about protecting yourself from the virus it's about protecting other people from the virus yeah because if you have the virus as a young person or actually any person but there's a higher likelihood particularly in children that you might be asymptomatic asymptomatic or have really really mild symptoms that don't really affect you but if you go out they estimate that potentially every one person with the virus can infect another two and a half people and over the course of 30 days that kind of exponentially rise to 400 people-ish being affected but if we reduce that by 50 percent at least by social distancing then at the end of the same 30-day period only about 15 people are affected so it's it's these exponential curves in, in transmission rates are what we're trying to cut and flatten this curve instead of getting this huge sharp steep um upright rising number of cases so yes you, you're Danielle's protecting other people oh, yeah danielle's got her hands up so if we just shoot over to her oh yeah i just wanted to add to that i, I think that's absolutely right but i think the other thing is that people have focused so much on the fact that it's older people who are affected by this virus that they've forgotten about the other vulnerable groups um so i think a lot of people are thinking oh well you know i haven't seen my granny in however long it's absolutely fine i can go out i'm not making anyone ill without thinking that they might have a friend who has cancer or is pregnant or has asthma mm -hmm. or who is 30. um you know a lot of younger people are, fall into the vulnerable groups that are also affected by COVID-19 and I think those people are being um, ignored both by the media and by um, a lot of people when they're trying to work out what risks they're willing to take. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah I, I think that that's, that's, uh, that's been unfortunate. So we have a question from um, one of our live guests um, which is saying so with regards to isolating with family if you live with someone who is in the high risk group what are the rules for interaction within the household? So, can anyone on the panel? Um, I think end? I think Danny, you probably do know this. I had it written down somewhere because I printed it off. Yeah, today I, yeah, I can I can answer that one. Guidance. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm happy to answer that one. So, um, the ideal thing, if you are, I mean, it's much easier now that people basically should be staying at home anyway. The uh, idea is that if you are symptomatic and you are living with someone who is a vulnerable person then you have to try as much as possible in the home to isolate yourself from them, which I know is a much harder, that's much easier said than done. Uh, but that's the idea. Try very hard not to share um, rooms with them or, you know, stay as far away. So socially distance yourself from them as much as possible, particularly if you're symptomatic. Um, I think that, um, that people are finding it particularly difficult, for instance, if they themselves are healthcare workers and they live with someone who is lives in a, is in a vulnerable group, this is particularly difficult guidance to follow. Um, but that is the guidance that try as much as possible to uh, isolate yourself from them, particularly if you are still going out and particularly if you're symptomatic. Well, I've got a sort of a personal example is that my um, sister-in-law is a teacher 
um, and she teaches in an SEN school. So it's a school which has remained completely open because every single pupil uh, that is in there has special educational needs. And <clears throat> uh, she lives with my mother-in-law, um, who is in one of the vulnerable groups. So she's had to take the step of actually withdrawing from teaching at the school because the risk that she was presenting to her mother-in-law by going out, interacting with the pupils and then coming back to the environment of being with uh, her mother-in-law was too exposing um, in that sort of respect. So that's a sort of co conflicting um, area where you, on the one hand you have somebody who classifies as a key worker, uh, but on the other hand, actually because of her particular home situation, her residential situation, it was far more important that she doesn't have that interaction with those people so it goes to show how nuanced these approaches are and um, you have and you have to be very aware of your own personal situation to ensure that you are prioritizing the aspect of not interacting with people unless you absolutely have to um she had her hands up yeah. um yeah i'm just kind of adding to that and i'm not really adding uh any solutions i'm probably ending problems that I'm not sure if you, if you, Danny, um, have had this experience, but I, you know, at the moment, all I do is speak to people on the phone and 50% of those people are now concerned about coronavirus, whether they've got symptoms or not, or living with other people. And it's, it is a very difficult one. I've dealt with um, mothers who have children with symptoms um, of, of suggestive of coronavirus. What do they, they can't isolate themselves really at all from a sick child, for a sick child you know, you're caring from them, you're caring for them, and then, you know, you're potentially with other members of the household. So they're having to find ways, you know, isolate one parent with one sick child and keep everyone else away. I've had family members call and say they've moved out of the house and moved into someone else's house because um, of either symptoms or because of trying to social distance. Um, so it's, it's just, it is just really complicated and in pra practicality, you have the advice is there, but you have to interpret it the best you can to suit your your home situation and your work situation. So, and then and then the pregnant the pregnant women that are living in households with with people who have symptoms as well. It's not it's quite complicated. I've got patients who have not slept in the same bed with their partner for you know a couple of weeks because of, because of all of this. So the impact on daily life is is significant, and there's not a straightforward answer how to always um you know deal with symptoms social distancing and isolation i think it's particularly difficult make that i think she might want danielle to respond to as well don't forget to unmute ros i was going to ask a very i was actually going to ask lucia a question about technology so if that is taking us away danielle from what you wanted to talk to us if that was more in the public health space than and do and I can always come back to my question about technology. Um, no, no, well, no, no. Um, Felicia, I was quite interested because I, I hope you don't mind, OJ, but um, about the use of technology because you said that you've been doing phone calls, and I feel like um, my that's kind of the service that's being offered to me as a patient as well. It's it's a phone call. Do you find that with all these accelerated processes and things that were available to us before, but now it just seems to be ever so telephone conversation, uh, telephone conference um, appointments, uh, video conferencing, everything now happening remotely or via technology. Have you noticed? Is it is it a good thing? Is it here to stay? I, I'm taking us slightly off, but I'm just interested for a frontline perspective. No, yeah, that's really interesting and something I've talked about a lot um, for different reasons. Actually, 
One is that going back pre pre COVID a few weeks ago, um, pre COVID, um, the one of the big pushes in the primary care sort of uh, workforce plan from the NHS England was sort of pushing this digital first NHS, and that the NHS is much is quite behind on being on using technology. So the use of the NHS app, booking appointments, um, promoting self care through technology. Uh, people accessing services directly through you know using the internet like we do for everything else whereas the NHS was still a bit slow and you still have to call up your GP practice sometimes and sit in a queue or go there physically to get an appointment and have a face-to-face -face conversation that could have been done probably more efficiently using technology so the irony is now again we're doing this at lightning speed um, I've never seen a uh, uh, CCG, so the 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 bodies that sort of commission services, sort of implement new brand new technology so quickly ever. Like we're getting video consultating consultation programs. I'm using my phone to speak to patients through like a link I sent to my phone, and then I can have a video consultation with them now. So it's really it's really interesting. Um, I think personally, if this goes on for long enough primary care and how we interact particularly in primary care with with patients will change and there'll be a lot more use of remote uh, consulting a lot more uh, video consulting and that's I think that will stay I however the problem we still face with the primary care situation is there are still patients you need to see that are not corona patients and you still need to see patients if they have particular symptoms or signs you can't just say I'm not going to see you let's have a phone conversation you still need to see patients and for some things you face you can't you don't you can't beat sometimes face-to-face -face interaction which unfortunately we have to all put to one side for a few weeks or months um, but there's a lot you can get from a patient or a conversation when you have it in person that will probably lose from doing so many um, telephone or video consultations so it's like the downside Dan, I think you had a question, I believe. Your hand is raised. Me, yeah. So I, I know I was going to echo that point um, around uh, is innovation here to stay? I, I have spent the good part of my life trying to get people to do things a bit more effectively. And they've always said, no, but this is the way I've done my practice for 30 years. This is how it works. It's too difficult. We couldn't possibly do it safely. There's always been a thousand roadblocks. And the slightly nicer thing about COVID is you're going to have to do this because otherwise there's no other way. And we, we've streamlined it. And people that were resistant to the idea of being able to follow up with a patient that was just a review being like you had surgery eight weeks ago you haven't complained about any symptoms but we're just going to come in and bring you in to see us for you to tell us that to our faces and us to double check your scans that's all been on the phone now because there's no need to bring them in and so things that are taking forever to try and resolve will have been resolved in days and I mean like yes we've decided it's done it has been amazing um, my favorite is when they've emailed me saying we should have done this years ago and I was like I'm going to batter you <laughs> so I'm not but like the amount of times some of them have now ironically started sending me emails about how well things are working so we try to get um uh, them to uh, all of our consultants to use a, an app to dictate their letters which automatically uploaded it to a cloud which then downloaded it into the available secretaries for the right specialty to type up the letter saving loads of time they didn't have a dictate they didn't have a dictate they didn't have to move a tape 
Would they do it? No. Do they all do it now? Do they love it? Yes, they do. It is literally turning everything around in about 45 minutes. Right. It's ridiculous. I can't, I can't, con- I can't support that. Just... It's, 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 a, it's amazing what really can get done when, when you fight for it. HR, HR's my favourite. If you've ever been in health and social care HR, you need something changed. It, oh no, I think we need a working group. It takes months. I've just I just wrote an MOU and said, get that signed because that's what we're going to do. And it's, it's working through with, I think we're, it would normally have taken six months, took three days, which is nothing in the grand scheme of stuff. It's great. So if we just circle back, because I think Danielle was going to um, answer a question prior to us uh, segueing into technology. Um, Danny, did you still want to um, say what you were, you're muted by the way. Yes, there we go. Um, uh, yeah, so my, my question, my comment is sort of related to what we were talking about before, so I'll, I'll, I'll be quick. But I was just going to say that um, it's, it's important to remember that key workers are also in vulnerable groups. You know, you have yeah. pregnant doctors, you have nurses who suffer from cancer, you have, you know, it's, and a lot of people, I mean, I, I suppose this is just, I, guess, I suppose, a shout out, but there are a lot of people who are taking really massive risks. All those people are coming back out of retirement are people who are in vulnerable groups often who just by dint of their age are um, likely to get incredibly sick um, and so we were just talking about how difficult it is to self-isolate there are people who are leaving their families for months because they have they want to be on the front lines but they also have a vulnerable person in their home um, and so you know when it comes to the workforce I think it's really important to remember that these people are people and that they have yeah um, all of all of those things going on as well yeah as a as a person who's classified as a key worker but in a completely different area that's definitely something that we at the bar um have been discussing and have been quite concerned about as well because I think um in terms of medicine and law they're both vocations and they're both aspects they're both jobs that you feel obligated to go to I think very often um as a doctor as a nurse as a lawyer as a solicitor you go to work even when you're not feeling well and actually you're really having to change your mentality around that um in this particular environment because you know keeping calm and carrying on is often more detrimental than it than it is otherwise but also if you have a different type of vulnerability such as being pregnant or having any other thing that could make you potentially at risk you're constantly having to weigh up day by day whether you should go to work and assist others or whether you should prioritize your health and stay home and it's a really tricky thing to do in reality um, despite what the black and white wording of the policies um, may say if we now move over into social care and hear from Bami, who, as we know, is somebody who has had almost a decade of experience in terms of managing care homes, we very often hear quite a lot when we talk about these healthcare policies concentrated on environments such as hospitals, GP surgeries and so on. But there's this whole other category um, of residential environment that these policies are really affecting isn't there in terms of residential care homes and I'm really curious to hear from you Bami as to what adjustments you're having to make uh, in that industry in that environment to make sure that you are complying with these um, areas of advice with uh, policies and so on but still providing care to people who frankly are the most vulnerable in society. 
Um, <clears throat> well, going back to when we started earlier with um, the rollout of the um, isolation program and how that was kind of slow, was kind of a slow, but I think that was very key in allowing organizations like ours to catch up essentially with fast moving times, with fast changing policies. I think without that, would not have been able to on a dime switch um, in terms of how we manage our staff, how we manage um, our resources. That would not have been yeah. possible had the government initially immediately said that we're going straight into lockdown. We were given time to kind of approach things from a business continuity perspective to really take into account how this affects our staff, how this affects our ability to get PPE, which, well, it's been quite hairy in recent days, I have to say, but we've... Well, you spent all I, day trying to get PPE, haven't you? Let's, um, let's be honest, you spent today looking for PPE. So for people who are, are, are unaware, do you want to just explain what PPE is um PPE is pers um, personal protective equipment so like things like um gloves and the various kind of masks that you use in different scenarios when caring for people aprons and hand sanitizer to a degree it was considered a form of PPE and these things are obviously in massive demand right now and extremely hard to find there is a national stockpile uh, an influencer stockpile that you can apply for access to but the methods through which you do that aren't work, trust ID or anything like it's very difficult to actually narrow down how to just get on, get, get the ball rolling. I'm exploring about three or four avenues right now that I'm hoping to get somewhere with, but we'll see where that leads. And so, just in terms of um, obviously with the idea of isolation or the idea of social distancing, um, people who are in care homes are obviously people who would very much look forward to receiving visitors, to having that sort of interaction to keep them connected to wider society. What sort of measures are being put in place for your for residents within care homes to ensure that their mental health and their connection to um, others in society is maintained? Um, well, that's kind of the big irony about how this has panned out in the um, pandemic. Well, a global pandemic might remind us on a really large scale how much we need and rely on each other, how much the interactions of social, the social interactions across all our lives in such myriad ways that are impossible to take into account. But at the same time, because of the nature of the pandemic, we are forced to separate, we are forced to disengage from each other. So as much as we're brought together, we're also kind of torn apart. Um, it's, it's, it's weird. I mean, Initially, because because of like the um, the extreme nature of 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 the, of the situation, the loneliness factor is taken for granted to a large to a large degree, and it's not at least at this early stage, it's not seen as a, a massive thing to take into account. I think mean, things are still changing on the ground. Um, people are still acclimatizing. People are still managing staff and resources in, in that way, trying to ensure that morale stays up, ensure that um, circumstances that they might have with their children, their families, and their personal health. Are taken into account. So the loneliness factor is something to take into account later on, but that in itself does represent in it, um, a does represent its own pandemic risk. Like it's a massive um, there, there is a massive um, risk at play here in terms of loss of economic yeah. security for people. Um, we have millions out of work just thrown out of work in over the course of a couple of days. Um, we have bereavement 
to contend with or we will have lots of movement to contend with in, 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 in the coming months and, or week, weeks and months. And those, these things are all massively exacerbate the loneliness factor. And there has to be a, a really well-considered approach to managing that and dealing with that. And I haven't really seen that emerge as of yet. And it's a really difficult thing to do, given the constraints of a pandemic and how we are forced to isolate. And how do you go about that? As in, there is, as in the internet does play a role as in communication and kind of considered um, approaches that take into account um, safer, um, safe ways of engaging with people without um, passing on the virus. But I think we've kind of demonstrated over the last 20 or 30 years that the internet and great it is for connecting people hasn't really helped our loneliness problem in the way that we might have thought, as in amongst organ, all, all age demographics, amongst all kinds of demographics, the loneliness is on the rise, even despite our increased connectedness. So it's difficult to envisage a way in which we can alleviate that. Um, and I haven't really seen anything from the government. Sorry, it, it feeds into what Felicia was saying before about the kind of wider ramifications of um, COVID and the fact that there are going to be mental health consequences that come as a result of this. And, yeah, I mean, you know, direct loneliness, the lack of interaction. If you already have um, some any sort of mental health vulnerability, uh, I can imagine that being forced to stay inside, losing any sense of that interaction, if you're not technically savvy um, and so on, then it, it's only going to exacerbate um, those concerns. But it's interesting to hear you say, Fami, that frankly, what's ha- what seems to be happening at this moment in time is that there's a more immediate concern around just containing flattening the curve and that those things seem to be uh, aspects that will need to be dealt with in future is that something that you agree with Felicia? Yeah um, definitely it's going to be a long-reaching issue even again looking pre-COVID as it, the work, a lot of the work and I'm sure Dami will know um, around sort of new ways of working was around engaging with um, care homes in a more connected way with primary care and social care and getting these kind of personalized, unique ways of supporting isolated people, elderly people, disabled people, and we've got services like APK who are heavily involved in providing those services where they you know, go to these lonely people's houses and get them out for a walk or go and talk to them and or take them to the sort of a day center or a dance class and those kind of services and connecting people with lots of community services, people that don't speak English, people with other sort of special um, or unique needs that just need help rather than medical help, just need some help, some advice, literally support. All of that's being pulled because you can't, you can't contact people, you can't be in contact with people. So they're already a group of people who needed that extra social support which is now being taken away from them for potentially a long time whilst we deal with the immediate stopping, you know, the spread and flattening the curve. And then the ramifications of that are probably going to be multiplied because it's been, it will be neglected. And, you know, without fault, we can't say that you can't, you know, you can't let people go to people's houses in and out of several people's houses every day to keep them company if you're spreading a virus to vulnerable groups. It's, it's a catch-22, I guess. Um, so, Bami, I, I have a question for you. And obviously, I think it's important, even particularly given what we heard, what's been happening in Spain 
um, today with reports of um, elderly homes being left abandoned with even in some cases reports of dead um, dead elderly patients being left in beds. And I wanted to um, ask you about kind of like the legacy of the last 10 years of Tory government and what that legacy has had on the social care, um, social care um, situation now um, and kind of where that leads us going forward or leaves us going forward. Was it after me? Because I missed quite a bit. Yeah, so th that's <laughs> after me. <laughs> no, it, 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 slowed, it slowed down massively. I, I couldn't hear what was being said, unfortunately. So essentially my question is, obviously, given what's happened in in Spain, obviously, with the um, the the, the, well, the and reports oh, of yeah. nursing homes being left, you know, abandoned with, in some cases, dead elderly patients being left in beds, um, and obviously knowing what's been going on in the UK over the last 10 years, um, with regard to kind of like the hollowing out of the budget for social care, where do you think yeah, that helps us is going for, kind of like juxtaposing between Spain yeah. and UK, where do you think that leaves us going for? Um, there isn't really a great deal of clarity on exactly what broke down in Spain in order to allow that to happen. I mean, there is an investigation that's just started into, the, into that, but the idea of vulnerable, vulnerable elderly people being abandoned to succumb to the virus alone, only to be discovered by the army who are disaffecting towns is the stuff of nightmares and the exact kind of things we want to avoid in this country. I know it starts, it started there with like an issue of, of um, a, um, a, lacking, a lack of PPE for um, um, funeral care staff who were reluctant to then go into homes to um, claim the, um, the body of the deceased, but the bodies of the, of the deceased and staff at, at home, staff working in those homes for whatever reason. I'm not quite sure where the breakdown there was, but they essentially left those people, um, left people, people in those homes ran away. I'm, I'm not sure how, well, I guess we'll find out in the coming weeks what, what actually led to that. And um, we do have, we have, been, we have been given robust guidelines in terms of um, ethical practice and, um, and, and how, how to basically maintain and treat them with dignity, the, the dignity of people we care for and, and under these circumstances and how and the best practices in that regard. And I think material from the government has actually been really good and very comprehensive in, in that regard, uh, regard. But we're nowhere near on the same scale as Spain is in terms of progression of um, the outbreak. So it's hard to say, given how basically the social care infrastructure has been hollowed out over the last 10 years, we'll, whether or not we'll be, able, we'll be able to basically maintain the standard that we would like to set for ourselves in terms of providing high standards of care, should things progress to a really, really stark level of, of, of turmoil and, and only time will tell whether or not the mechanisms we have in place, whether it's um, stockpiles and delivery mechanisms, um, are up to the challenge. And Dan, did you have something that you wanted to say there? Yeah, so I've got one positive note and one negative note. I'm going to try and balance myself a bit more. So one of the weirdly positive things that came out of Brexit was our um, the amount of time and money that was devoted to contingency planning for no-deal Brexit. Um, both in terms of the NHS and in social care, but also government and the amount of teams that were just set up, which were instant response teams trained. And all of those things have just kicked in now. And one of the things that social care had was 
if for some reason the economy collapsed and social care collapsed, how could you put in an infrastructure that meant care homes and people weren't missed? And so there was a lot of work done to map out what social care looks like in every area. And that was only kind of stood down in January. We're only in March and it feels like a long time, like 2020 is knackered us, but that wasn't there. So there's been a lot of infrastructure about how do we create a, a kind of a net under social care because of no deal Brexit. So that all still exists and is being used now if the, as this crisis unfolds. The, the bit for me, in which I think is really important about what the bill does, which we'll come on to another podcast, is it's the people that aren't in formal care homes, it's the people that may get um, a kind of uh, budget that they get signed by their local authority every uh, year to pay for their own ongoing care. And they're their own employers. So they employ their own staff to look after them. And that's not always centralised. So people don't know the care arrangements. So if those local care arrangements fail, they won't get picked up as quickly as if a care home loses 30 members of staff and therefore can't operate. The local authority will know that and should step in and we should avoid Spain. But it's the people that have set up, in a sense, a limited company to look after their own care. Those people are probably the most at risk. And if you know anyone with long-term disabilities and care like that, reach out to them and make sure if they do have a problem that you know how to raise it for them. Like I've got some friends with, I have a, my, one of my old employees in the Department of Health is disabled. Um, she has to text me every 12 hours now, otherwise I get very worried about her and give her a call. But it's little things like that to say, she can't go 12 hours without having to send me a message or me sending her one. So it's, it's checking in and that's not what way our society function. I think we come on into the next section where I wrote a very long rant about how I feel about what this proves to us from a wider policy perspective so i'll stop there but hopefully we should stop spain so bambi what did you um so bambi Um, you had your hands up there yeah um, i'm asking lots of variants i think within i think we we deal with um four 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 london bars we deal with havering and barking bagging and watson forest and havering barking bagging watson forest and harringay and i've seen a lot of variants in terms of how they go about approaching issues like that i think Barking and Bagging, for example, um, send out daily surveys, essentially, for, for updates regarding your staff situation and whether or not you've managed to establish links with um, other homes and other care and other care situations. And they've been very good at linking people together, in that regard, whereas others have been a bit more patchy in their approaches. So I guess there are mechanisms within local government to address issues, to address issues like that, but I don't think there are been applied evenly. I don't, I don't think um, every council is up to the task in the same way. It's not uniform in terms of yeah. just how prepared everybody is. And, and that actually leads me on to my next question for you, Babby, which was to ask you, do you feel as though you are being provided with clear direction, with clear ideas of the welfare measures and so on that need to be implemented uh, for the people that are under your, the care of, of your home? Um, like I said, the, the material itself is very good, and like um, peripheral organisations have also been very great. The information that they've been able to provide, like um, the Care Provider Alliance and ACAS, has had really good information that you can use, and there's the support lines and hotlines that you can call, and those by and large are very helpful. But one thing about the material is that it is a it is a lot of material. It, it is a lot of things to kind of take into account, a lot of things to implement, and that in itself is not an issue but getting things down to staff in the way that bolsters their confidence and keeps them all up and mm. help them understand that um 
we reprioritize their health and we see them as a priority as well as um, the people we care for is more difficult. And I think it will become more difficult as time goes on, as people, more, more people become infected and people start weighing up their options and deciding whether or not they're willing to risk their health and their family's health and their well-being. We've heard about the issue in Spain and as much as we want to imagine that couldn't happen in this country, I, I, don't, I, would, I would not bet my health on that. So it's, it's, it's been by and large pretty good. I mean, I, I, I feel like, I, like we were given plenty of time for business continuity planning. So we were able to use that as a framework in order to guide our process. And we're given loads of material on how to go about that specifically with regard to the virus. So I feel like we've, we've, been, well, we've been well prepped, but only time, can, only time will tell whether or not we're equal to challenges that may arise that we're not quite abreast of yet. So the last part of the uh, today's episode, because I'm just bearing in mind that we started at eight and it's now 20 minutes past um, nine. Um, we were supposed to be an hour-long episode. Um, so the last parts of that we had were to look into what we think the long-term consequences would be. And I think actually over the course of uh, our discussions, we've covered um, a lot of that. We've spoken about the changes that it may have in terms of the way that things are done on the higher levels, the use of technology, um, the emphasis that we now have and, and a recognition that we now have on how much we rely on interactions um, with one another. Um, but um, Roz, I know that you had some thoughts on this area um, in particular um, and that you as well, Danielle, wanted to talk about the fact that the impact goes far beyond just COVID itself so maybe if we start with Roz go to Danielle and then we'll end with Dan <laughs> with the rants that I know he's been gearing up to over the course of this entire episode um so yeah so if we start with Roz um yeah well I, I think the interesting thing here around the long-term consequences is how long are we going to be in this kind of crisis mode. Um, and that really goes to something we talked about earlier about the exit strategy. So, you know, is, is it going to be a vaccine? Well, we're hearing at the earliest 12 months, 18 months away, if even if it's even possible. Um, so you've got that as a potential option. Uh, herd Im uh, kind of herd immune, um, kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Herd, um, herd immunity. Herd immunity. Thank you. Herd immunity. Um, that um, looks, uh, you know, I think we thought it could be, I think early um, modeling thought it could happen, but of course the virus accelerated at such a rate that um, it was just creating too much, um, too much pressure on our um, capacity. So, um, and again, there's no evidence that we're gonna get there anytime soon. So you've got that. And then what are your other options? Well, it is containment. It's the, the, the society, um, measures societal measures that we bring in to try and control behavior so really the only thing at the moment that we do have is that third one around basically restriction uh, of movement of people uh, which will you know halt the movement of the the virus um so until either two of the others either herd immunity um or a, a vaccine emerge we could as i said i think earlier could you know see a 
oscillating between um, different strategies of lockdown or some kind of lockdown, maybe regional um, and uh, and kind of more relaxed um, movement of people. It, but I think it's going to be a long time before we have national borders open, free-flowing airports up and running again. Um, it, it, it's going to take us a while. So it's going to be interesting to know what the long-term strategy is because, um, or consequences, sorry, because I think we could be in this phase um, for quite a bit longer, which isn't a very jolly thing to say, so I'm sorry about that, everyone. <laughs> um, all right. <laughs> On that happy note, if we move over to Danielle. Bami, I see your hand up. We'll come to you afterwards. Um, if it helps at all, what I'm about to say isn't any more jolly. Um, oh, God. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, but basically, the when we look at huge, in public health, when we look at huge uh, things like pandemics, um, we have to look at what we call externalities. So other things that happen that have a health impact that aren't just to do with the pandemic or whatever itself. And so, I mean, you can kind of divide it up. The first thing that we saw, we saw with things like Ebola were that uh, mortality from other things went up quite significantly. So things like malaria, maternal mortality, stuff like that because people can't get healthcare, um, infrastructure breaks down, all of that sort of stuff. So we really need to be looking out for that sort of thing uh, when we um, think about what's going to happen over the next year, two years, three years. Apart from that, there are going to be huge health impacts of the fact that we've had to quarantine. So um, loads of things, stuff like uh, domestic violence may well go up because people are suddenly trapped with their abusers, child abuse might go up. Uh, smoking may go up, alcohol use may go up, uh, falls in older people because they don't have the support networks that they previously had. Um, uh, there are lots of uh, health uh, outcomes that may get significantly worse because of the breakdown of infrastructure that we have because of COVID. Um, and uh, I think that that's something that a lot of uh, organisations are planning for, but it's difficult to know exactly what's going to happen. Um, and then on top of that, um, this virus in particular has the potential to um, exacerbate health inequality. So um, this is something I bang on about a lot. Um, I talked about it last time I was on. Um, there's already a huge life expectancy gap between the rich and poor. And when you add in a virus that you're more likely to get if you have heart disease, lung disease, if you're working in a setting where you have to see a lot of people, so for instance, waiters, uh, taxi drivers, you know, people who live in the gig economy, if you're more likely to get it because um, you can't take time off work and you're more likely to go into work symptomatic, um, if you're living in substandard housing, which means that you can't isolate from other people, um, all of that could potentially really widen the health inequalities that we already have in this country. Um, and so I think when, when we think about an exit strategy, when we think about what's going to happen over the next few years, um, we really have to think that there's a lot of, it's not just about the people who had um, COVID and, and the uh, morbidity mortality from that. It's also about all of the things that happen because of, of everything we've had to do to try and stem the disease itself. And then Bami, I think you had your hand up. Oh, sorry. Um, one thing I forgot to mention that I think will play a large um, 
role in determining how much of a horror show this virus will end up looking like for us in this country, in both the medium and the long term, is hospital discharge and the extent to which the NHS has already been backed up by the dearth in social and local government and social care provisions and how people are stuck in beds for extended periods of time and, and, and whether or not um, the um, people being discharged from well, hospitals, having, hospitals having had the virus are able to reintegrate back into um, either, either care provisions or their own homes. I think if we see a situation where people just are, end up stuck in hospitals, we could have a, a mild disaster on our hands in terms of how the virus ends up playing out. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, all right, so Dan, <laughs> what did you want to say? I know that it was when we described as a rant. You had a very strong views that you wanted to put across in terms of the wider aspect. Thing. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to change it from what was described as a rant. Is it's how I it, <laughs> to try and end positively? Um, I'm going to give it a go, guys. It's been a tough couple of weeks. But um, from a wider policy perspective, and that's how I kind of see the world, and the, the first season geekery has probably not been lost of anyone that's rejoining us, Danielle, Abby. But what I would say is what we have completely failed to do as a society is fix the roof when the sun was shining. We like to pretend that we are always in crisis, that there's always some big problem, and that we must focus on a new shiny thing that will make us all fix it um, and healthcare and social care is particularly fond of transformation projects and new boards and new organizations and fundamentally what COVID has shown us as a sector is it is not about a new shiny hospital subspecialty in this it is about knowing who in your local hospital that works 20 minutes down the road you can talk to about doing a, a joint pathway and sharing stuff it's about managing relationships within the sector and it's about getting the simple things right it's about reducing waste and amount of work that we do it's about making us work more intelligently and smarter and following the evidence but what it has shown us on a wider policy perspective is that we we let a lot of things slide as a society there has been so many reviews on how the gig economy is failing many of its workers and that came out in what I think 2017 have we done anything yeah. no so no one's done anything but now we all know that's a big problem because they're all still going to work but we can't stop them because we never tried to fix it when a good time was coming we all talk about the problems with housing and welfare and the problems with the system and the system hasn't been working in the good times so now it has to deal with an extraordinary emergency of course it won't cope so next time someone asks you for their vote or next time they ask you what you think about something and you go well, it doesn't affect me now because i'm employed i'm healthy i'm fine those things that you don't use daily become essential to you in a pandemic and an emergency and we we seem to forget that all the time and i hope and i really do hope this is the response from covid is that we start really caring about the detail of how our society works and don't leave it to somebody else to fix it's not just up to sad people like me to read 326 pages of a, a bill and say that doesn't make sense it's not for very special groups it's on all of us to take an active interest and say will this work in a covid 20 or COVID 2025 and if it's not if our society's not ready and we're not got a plan to be ready for the next pandemic it means we haven't fixed the infrastructure we need to make a society work and that's that's i think the big policy challenge post-covid is to say yes there's been problems but how do we make sure the system is better fundamentally as a starting point than it was before we started this pandemic
Yay, damned for Prime Minister. No, no, because we didn't say any of the rude comments I wrote about people in the notes, did we? (laughs) Okay, and so I I think think it's um, a good point for us to bring the episode to an end. But I thought what we could try to do is um, try and end on a slightly positive note. So maybe we could go around. Oh, go on, Felicia. Say something positive. I was going to say... despite all that's been said and I have a lot of concerns and negative thoughts about what's going on but again when wider policy an issue but when we come down to like on the ground there are a lot of people out there who are actually risking their own health to like help people through this crisis I've had you know I've still seen patients with masks on and stuff seeing um, with potential symptoms, there are a lot of people who are treating you know very unwell coronavirus positive patients in hospital. Um, even patients who, pro- even people, as we mentioned, staff who probably shouldn't be working in hospital right now because they are vulnerable themselves. They've got their own health conditions. They may be pregnant. They may be looking after people at home. Um, so not that, that not that that's a good thing, but the lengths that some people are going to help continue to help care for people through this are quite sort of astonishing and it's quite amazing what people will continue to do when you've got a vocation you feel like I'm, this is my job I'm, I'm obliged to do this and unfortunately some people are willing to take some risks for other people or fortunately people are willing to take some risks for other people yeah it has been definitely sort of heartening and also even just hearing stories about the letters that people have been posting through their neighbours um front doors letting them know that they're there to assist them uh the conversations that people are starting to have with the people who live around them and getting in touch with them so there are positive and, and happy stories or um and hopefully happy legacies that will come out of what is overall a really serious and quite disheartening situation um so the, the thing that i was going to suggest that we do before we sign off and hopefully we can do it within less than a minute is for each of us just to name one thing uh, that we have taken up watched whatever time at home and less time um, socializing so i've downloaded tiktok and i think i finally persuaded jack to do a tiktok video with me so i will be doing that tonight <laughs> I can't wait, by the way. I can't wait. Thanks, Alicia. <laughs> uh, Dad. <What's> TikTok? <laughs> I'm, <done it. laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, so when I cleared out a, an old relative's house like years ago I found a book of old stamps from around the world and some of them are like from like the Soviet Union and uh, lots of random places and they're really old and I always kept going I'm going to do like a project where I like take pictures of them all and I write a short description of what they look like and I google image search them all and I just hope that they're worth some money and normally you always have something better to do than go through 400 stamps um, to find out if they're worth any money but don't any more yay <laughs> I'm praying for a house deposit just just on a side note stamps are worth a small fortune apparently in some places thank you guys uh, I just keep love how much of a geek you are Dan <laughs> yes. Roz what have you been up to um I've, I've actually tried to do that, you know, the DIY that you just don't get ever around to doing. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, it turned out there's a reason why 
I employ people to do it for me because I'm <laughs> really bad at it. And so um, today I tried to fix the shelf um, by sawing off an end. I, I sawed off the wrong end and now it's not a square. So it, it, it's miles away from fixing it. Up. Just so it's bad. So yeah, yeah. Six of the day job. Danielle, what have you been up to? So uh, I'm I'm not alone in this. Uh, uh, Animal Crossing came out on the Nintendo Switch a couple of days ago, <laughs> and um, that has been my life. My yeah, me and my fiance <laughs> have been playing it <laughs> all the time when I'm not working, and it is amazing. If you haven't, if you're a person who plays games, if you haven't got Animal Crossing on the Switch yet, that is your quarantine game. I promise. Alicia, what about you? Uh, I'm still going to work as normal. <laughs> yeah, I was about to, I was, I mean, as I went to, I was like, oh, Alicia was at work until 9 p.m. Uh, yesterday. So. <laughs> I'm still at work as well. So. Yeah, I mean, I am uh, too. I have, I have been, um, obviously, being the other part of my life, being a massive health and fitness freak, I can't go to the gym. So I have been able to, like, be more creative with my home workouts and my weights and my bands so that's and I've been starting doing some more yoga I just got into yoga and then the gym closed and now I'm doing some home yoga my, nice. my little app put it on the screen so I can change the way I live but I still have to go to work <laughs> I was quite worried now that I have to exercise daily outside this new guidance <laughs> is really making me a lot healthier you know what in that people, weren't doing, that. people weren't doing that before <laughs> yeah We've been trying to get people to exercise for years. Who knew what we needed to do is turn it into a treat? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very excited. Nami, what about you? Um, I just wanted to ask, going back to Rose's shelf sawing, are we expecting, just want to ask our doctor, are we expecting a bunch of people coming into A&E because they're bored at home <laughs> doing DIY? Yes. Yeah, it was bad. It, it, honestly, at one point, the saw was enormous. It was longer than my leg. <laughs> and I missed, like, I missed swipes. And I was like, oh, my God, I could have taken my leg off. And then I was like, that's really irresponsible. Because yes, the, the A&E do... department can't take another so, person. So... No, it can actually is quite quiet guys this needed to be it. this needed to be like two minutes i could do a live shot of a and e if you wanted right aya what, what have like, you been up to aya what have you been up to so i'm gonna basically say the complete opposite of you and i've successfully spent my time avoiding tiktok and avoiding <laughs> avoiding any suggestions from from my wife to to engage in it i've, I've been successful thus far just wish me luck for the rest of this isolation distancing period can i just let I you all know that what IR, what IR has been doing is pay, playing keepy uppy with toilet paper and which doing i still use exp- and doing increasingly long press-up challenges on instagram so this whole i don't do tiktok is no better than the rest of us thank you <laughs> very very much all right guys we're going to wrap up the Wait, hold on you didn't say there. yours oh, you did say yours you did say yours. i did oh, i started i said it's we're going to wrap up the episode there. Thank you ever so much to all of our panellists for joining in, uh, especially those of them who are still at work. I think that is Dan, Danny, Felicia. I think Bammy is probably still on call. And to be honest, Roz has a newborn baby, so she's She's 24-7 on call. Yeah, exactly. Just a reminder, guys. Congratulations. Congratulations. (laughs) 
I don't just know if you wanted me to share that, so yeah, sorry. Yeah, just to remind <laughs> the guys that the episodes will be um, available on our usual podcast channels. We will obviously have the live version, which will go on YouTube, but the um, this version will go on our podcast channels. The sound version will go on our podcast channels. Um, and also remember to subscribe to all our various yes. channels. So we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, uh, we will be on YouTube, we're on Spotify. So make sure that you follow us on whichever channel it is that you listen to us, that you follow us on social media to make sure that you keep up to date uh, with what we are up to. And stay tuned for our next episode, which will be an education-focused episode and should be coming out this weekend. Thank you guys very, very much. Thanks, guys. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.